You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. I gotta, I, I gotta, I need a quick therapy session from you. Okay. We just spent 72 minutes last episode talking about you're one month out from a race. What do you do now? And I broke mine down. You broke yours down and we all felt good about it. And, and then I later in the day or yesterday did a workout. And then today I was thinking, shoot, I think I already want to change my plan. So am I, I need, I need to either be talked off the ledge or pushed firmly off the ledge in the other direction. And I don't know which one is needed. Well, what happened yesterday that made you want to question your plan? I don't know. I don't know what happened. Well, I felt crappy yesterday. I had messaged you after my workout that the, the plan as we spoke on the podcast was I was going to do hard up a ski hill, rest a minute, hard down, rest 90 seconds, repeat until my lower legs are ready to be done. Well, as it turned out, either I'm not recovered from our workout or I'm in way worse shape than I thought I was because this is a workout I did prior to Tennessee in my buildup. And the first time I did it, I did three or four reps. And then the second time I got like five reps and this time I did three, but I didn't stop because my lower legs were smoked. I stopped because I couldn't breathe and I couldn't get my heart rate down. Mm. I was full on, full on anaerobic. On the first climb at the top, I was under control, hit the same time almost to the 10th of my first rep of the Tennessee build. Mm -hmm. And then on the second one, halfway up the hill, I was in like gasp mode. And I it felt in control on my climbs prior to Tennessee. Got it. So then what you're going to tell me now is that you're wondering if you need some more anaerobic type work instead of just pounding volume because somehow you've lost touch with that side of your fitness? If it was only high rocks, yes. But what worries me actually is I didn't get the lower leg. I didn't get the volume I wanted for the day. I ended up getting 80-ish minutes in, 85. I ended up only getting a little over, like right around 1,500 feet of vert. I didn't get the, the duration of workout I wanted for an ultra coming up. And so the plan this weekend was to do another two and a half to three hour grindy session. But part of me thinks I'm a little fresher now because of this. Should I do a big uphill swing? Should I do a massive incline trainer workout this weekend? And then next weekend still do my last big up and down and pound the legs? Or is pounding the legs more important than doing a ton of climbing? I get your conundrum. Because I want to do all, I want to do both, but I don't think I have time. Well, you're in an overreaching phase of training, right? Yes. Which means like you are swinging the hammer hard and you are not giving it the appropriate time to swing back and reset before you swing again, right? So you're purposely Just building. barely enough. Uh, no, I would say not enough compared with how your last week went. Me, I mean, Correct. me either. So I would assume in this overreaching phase, and I have a couple athletes in this right now. We just had talks yesterday. It's ironic you're bringing this up. They had real stale workouts. We've been ending big training blocks. It's obvious the fatigue's mounted. You can't be Superman forever. So I think it's a sign of fatigue. It's not a sign mm -hmm. of fitness. That's exactly what my gut tells me. And so 
but you know your body better than I do. And I think, you know, that's the best thing to say to yeah. somebody because you do. But I would guess it's an overreaching sort of syndrome in a sense where you're just you're just compromised, man. You're not recovered from all the big work you did last week. And you shit the bed on a workout. And that happens in overreaching. Mm-hmm. And so. And I'm cool with that. Yeah. Like I said, I don't want more anaerobic. I missed out on the duration of the workout that I wanted in order to have my legs ready for time on feet. And I'm thinking, how do I want to approach this weekend? Because I could get like a six-hour climb session in. This weekend is four week, four weeks out, right? Yeah. Next week is three, which is my last big one. So if I want to fit an extra big one, it would make sense to do it non-impact. If I could go climb like a 10,000 or 13,000-foot climb session... Is that what needs to be done to get extra time or do I, is it the descending that's going to hurt me more and I need to get out and descend more this weekend? I think you round it all out. You, uh, you hit all that climb. I think you climb this weekend. It's going to not create nearly as much damage. And obviously you got some damage going on somewhere. Um, and then you descend like heck that next week after, even if it's twice, maybe on like a midweek long run and then a quality weekend session, which is still be three weeks out. If I were you, that's what I would do. That's what I would do. Hit a big climb session and then try that midweek, tr- try to hit a, uh, a descent and a half then in the next week and a half after that. Yep. That's what I would do. I think you need to climb. Shortcut the recovery cycle instead of one big per week, hit one and a half per week along with my other stuff. That's what I would do, listening to you. I think that that way you can get it all. I don't want you to do your last hard. I wouldn't want to do my last hard descent workout four weeks out. I'd want it three weeks out. Well, either way, it'll be three. But either way, I'm going to do next week's big climb and descent. I might go back to to Rib Mountain. Uh, But this weekend, do I descend this weekend and get less overall volume because I'm still a little smoked? Or do I do a really big day and remove the impact? Like what's more important, big time on feet or impact? I don't know, but my gut tells me climb. <laughs> I know we're nitpicking, and this is what happens when you leave it too late. I, I fully understand that this is my bed that I made. So if I have two and a half weeks of good work, the real question is how many times should I descend? I think we preach on this podcast, like just because a race didn't go well or a workout didn't go well, you shouldn't go back and rewrite the script. Like you have to trust that you know what you're doing, right? But moving yeah. puzzle pieces around, I understand to get the right stimulus. So like, mm-hmm. I I don't know, man. I know you're the same way. You never read too much into one workout. At least I don't. If I start, nope. if I start like stacking bad workouts on top of each other, then I start to like get concerned, um, especially if I can't point at like, obvious fatigue but you can mm-hmm. so and you've had plenty of impact I, I would take away the impact have i that's my question again i don't care about my fitness indicators well you had five thousand feet of descent this last weekend even though it wasn't necessarily hard and we had snow on the ground but, mm-hmm. but that's one big one mm-hmm. i can't point to another smash my leg session that we've done so do i need is two enough or is three going to be exponentially better than two in this buildup. I think two is enough. As long as the two are big With enough. Micro doses in along the way. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Okay. So that then to round off the, the equation, to round it out here, I climb really big this week and descend really big next week. Yes. And make sure they're both big. Yep. And I, I would try to even do like a half descent where you just go chase some vert on a ski hill and just descend it like moderate effort, but climb easy. 
and like just get a couple little small stimulus in there, like two of them between now and next weekend, just enough to, to grease the groove. That's, that's what I, that's what I think after hearing you talk, but yeah. Okay. That's what I think. I don't mind grinding on the incline trainer. That's always built me good fitness. It's always built me good stay power. It's always built me aerobically really well. So, yeah. And good leg strength work too. Like you just can't replace that grind. So I just think like I'd rather hit that sooner than later too. So, yeah. And and the question that just keeps rattling around the back of my head is five hours in to this race, what am I going to regret missing out on more? A big climb session or a big descent session? Or am I going to think, I should have just climbed and descended big every time I got a chance. Like combine them all at this point because there's no time. I think you'd probably think that if anything. So is there a place for the treadmill at this point with two and a half good weeks of training left? Or is it all sports specific? Get out every five to seven days and pound something big. Nope. I think, I think, I think this would be appropriate timing for your last treadmill non-damaging session. So with that... Yesterday, I did a quality session. Even though I didn't get out of it what I wanted, it was quality. How soon can I do like a three to four hour climb session on the treadmill? Yesterday being Tuesday. Because there's no impact. Yesterday was Tuesday. We're recording today on Wednesday. Is tomorrow too soon or can I hit it hard tomorrow or Friday morning? What's the try to move up my cycle. Oh, gotcha. Because we're on a limited. Friday. Friday. Give you, I would, I don't know why just give yourself one more day. I would say, wouldn't you, mm-hmm. your legs probably feel pretty good today, I suppose, but I don't know what you're doing a strength work. I, Upper I body just, lift today. I, I would wait one more, man. I would wait one more day. That's what I would do. But so Friday morning, hammer it hard and then recover as well as I can and get out to granite and smash my legs. Yes. Here's my plan for granite. The next time I'm there. Okay. Get up casually up the concrete road like we did last time immediately turn and balls out to the bottom on the cement to create damage on the cement and just set the tone for nothing i do for the rest of the day will be on good legs and then just head right to the ski hill and get as much vert as i can for at least two to three hours and then come back and do that again yeah if it were me i would go back and forth between the ski hill and the cement because I just think there's so much power to that. And maybe even three times of up down that cement. Yeah, like just smash it. Yeah. Yeah. And then stay away from hills for like nine days of descent. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like a week and a half of no descent and stick to high rocks work with incline in between. I like it. Maybe I'll join you. Okay. Maybe. Sometime between next Thursday and Sunday. Okay. I like okay. your plan. I think that's fair. Well, we just got a t- like a 11-minute uh, coaching consult out of the way, so thank you. Yeah. Well, I didn't really. I just – you would have done that. I think that those are the decisions you would have landed on without my – I don't know. Nodding. I've been going back and forth all day on massive treadmill session or just get out and get another two-and-a-half-hour up-and-down session this weekend. You got to change it up. got to change it up. I was just going to change location. Mm. Yeah. I uh, I don't think you can go wrong either way. I think you should. I think you should push it off. I think you should get those small. Oh, got a voicemail. Small stimulus. Um, small stimulus between the big the big next downhill effort as far as descending goes. You're gonna be money. 
Yeah. I think you're right. Um, yeah. I know what we did last weekend. Remember, that stuff doesn't go away. That's not how the body works. No. And I did some downhill yesterday. Yep. There you go. See? Exactly. You will sprinkle a downhill in there. It's only about a mile, mile, mile and a half of downhill, but it was fast enough that I don't need to do any more this week. You're right. Thank you, Coach Kirk, for that. I didn't do anything. I just confirmed. You did. Isn't that half of what being a therapist is? It's true. Is you sit there and you're just, you let the words bounce back to the person until they make their mind up. (laughs) 100%. Uh, Well, we were supposed to record with somebody today and and, uh, and we must have, I don't know, got our times crossed or something seems to happen. My message was very clear. So I know it's not on my end, but. uh, I'm generally the time zone screwer upper. I don't screw up time zones. I'm delighted that it's not me this time. <laughs> it's not me either. I'm going to point the finger at guest, but uh, I just got a missed call and a voicemail from said guest, but uh, we're rolling. We're committed to this. It's too late. We're we're in. One toes, one foot's in the water. We're jumping in both feet. We're in the air already. We're, there's no coming back. Yep. So um, I'm glad that you uh, feel better now, Bracken. And Thank you. I have a feeling our guest feels like crap. So we're going to keep cleaning house, aren't we? Yeah. I like Q&As. I love them. I had a conversation with a couple different people over the last few weeks. Same conversation, which was I find out that they're a listener of the podcast. I ask, all right, honest feedback. What do we do too much of? What do we do not enough of? What would you like to hear more of? And they all said, you guys always joke about Q&As being lazy or doing them too often. I never miss the Q&A. Hmm. And so if we have questions waiting, let's do it. I just, you know, like I'm still looking at these screenshots and like my first one is from February 6th. We just, we get it so many of them and we fall so far behind and then it does a disservice to our listeners. We damn it. We appreciate you. And so, um, anytime I think we have a scheduling snafu in the future or we run into problems, I think we just need to keep house cleaning because there's always Mm -hmm. good gems in here. Um, and I'm thinking I'll just start this off unless you got one that you're just salivating over right away. You start off the question, but I'm going to start off with something I am salivating over, which is a shout out. Rob Pettyjohn. I rarely shout out my athletes on here and maybe I should do it more often. I always thought that if it would feel too self-serving, like look at this guy giving a little infomercial and pimping his wares out here. But Rob Pettyjohn and I have been working together for two years now. And since the very first High Rocks he did, which was like a year and a half ago now, he has had one goal, which is to break the High Rocks record for the best age group time. So he's in his 40s and he wants to have the overall record for age group time. So against all age groups, the fastest time ever. And he was a minute and a half off, and then he was a minute off. And then in Chicago this year, he missed it by, I want to say, three seconds at the North American Championship, in which he won. He has not yet lost a high rocks wow. against all age divisions. But so he won the national, the North American title, but he missed the, the world best time by three seconds. Well, he went down to Dallas and beat it by over a minute. Just smashed it finally took care of that one thing that has been sitting up 
on his wall for over a year and a half. So Rob Pettyjohn, congratulations. He has had not uninterrupted training, but uninterrupted focus. We have just had a progressive build from one high rocks to another with an overarching view of the season, and he just hasn't lost. He's just dominating. He dropped in a DECA, dominated. Dropped in some stadiums, dominated. He's just an animal. He's a guy who found running late in life. He's 6'5". He's got like this this real efficient stride, but he's put together and he can he can work and he just never questions anything. He always wants to add more in and he got his world best time for it. So I wanted to take a minute and give him the credit he deserves. Anybody else deserve credit of your athletes? Or just a lot, him? but I yeah. mean, maybe this will start being a thing that I'd like to do more, but we'll start with just Rob. I don't want Rob to have to share the spotlight today. He earned this. Let's let him stand alone on that pedestal. Congratulations, Rob. Brack and I, we talked about, uh, I think I'm going to create a social media page just to uh, devote to my athletes' amazingness, which uh, I think we got to do a better job of as well. We should just do it on our Running Public page. It's not like we're <laughs> overposting on there by any means. <laughs> also true. We are committed to you folks. Don't you doubt that. Andrea Alvarez says, way back, way back says, hey guys, hoping you can address this in an upcoming Q&A. One thing I've been wondering is, for a relatively newbie runner, especially as far as long races like marathon and ultramarathons are concerned, what do you think is the safest percentage to increase weekly mileage or time on feet by? Thank you. Exclamation point. (sighs) The safest is 0%. Yeah. Stay lazy forever. It's hard to get hurt if you don't add stimulus. People throw around the 10% rule all the time. I almost could care less about that. What I would say is I like the idea of building it up as you see fit, which means you run what you can tip, what you can normally do. That's your baseline. And you start by adding five minutes to a run and then five minutes to the next run, and five minutes to the next run. Just add five minutes across the board. If you're a a three-day-a-week runner, that adds 15 minutes. For a a three-day-a-week runner, that's probably a mile and a half, mile and three-quarters worth of work. If you're a a five-day-a-week runner, you've just added 25 minutes of time, and maybe that's three miles. And you see how five minutes feels on you. And you just keep adding five minutes to your runs. Not every run if you don't want to, but on the days you feel good, add five minutes. On the days you don't, stick at the volume you're at and just let it creep up until you really start to know your body. I think the 10% rule works just fine, but it assumes, or maybe it doesn't make any assumptions. Maybe you're way under mileage. Maybe you're way over mileage. Raising 10% across the board, I don't like. So it's a bad answer, but just start increasing slightly and sit there and see how it feels. Um, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, you like I the 10%? Well, no, no, I, I don't actually like the 10%. I think that okay. the problem is, well, I mean, it's sound, of course, but in some ways you got to make your decision based on something. But I mean, there's so much to like the intuitive nature of the runner and just listening to your body and how it feels and ebb and flowing with that. But like, we're not really good at that, especially new runners are terrible at that. I'm still working on it. You're still working on it. Mm-hmm. It's heck. It's what the beginning of this conversation was all about as far as what stimulus you need to progress. Right. Um, mm-hmm. or this episode was about, so I, I just think the important thing is this. I think that you can increase mileage for two or three weeks in a row And then you absolutely must deload after three weeks of increase, whatever your percentage is, 
And I think you should cap, like I've seen people do 20% and I've seen it work if they're running 10 miles a week to start and then they go to 13 and then they go to 16. That's very safe in my opinion. Um, compared to somebody if they're running 90 and then they go to 110 and then they go to 135. That seems, I don't know, to me, that seems like bigger jumps, even though they're the same percentages. So um, point being is I would just increase based on how your body is feeling. I actually like to add my increase to the quality days in the long runs and then leave my fillers the the same, just because I think you're going to get a little more bang for your buck on those. But as long as every maybe two or three weeks where you progress and then one where you cut it by like 40%, like a huge Mm -hmm. deload, just to make sure you don't get into either early overtraining syndrome or injury. And so that's all I really care about is progress by feel, but you can't continue that progression longer than three weeks. And ideally, maybe if you're just starting to to try, go two weeks of increased volume and then one week lower than you were before you started all this, like, and repeat. I mean, we, we, you know, this, that's the same principles you use, but I just think people forget that they like to see a nice linear graph on their Strava Mm -hmm. and their volume charts. And that's not really how it should go. And the best way is pay now or pay later, as you say, and I'll steal that forever. Well, pay now and take a deload week so you don't have to pay later by nursing an injury because you just wanted to keep your progression going. And so that's really what I have to say about that in a nutshell. Well, these are always long answers. And I feel that maybe some people hear us as wishy-washy, but it's actually the opposite. One thing that I really don't like in endurance training are people who speak in absolutes. Because that's what a lot of the the marketplace wants to hear are just absolute. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. It kind of, I think of caffeine all the time when I hear that. Like, how much caffeine should I take? Like, I don't know. How much do you weigh? How much caffeine have you been using? Like, there is a ratio per kilogram of body weight that your caffeine intake should align with. But all gels that have caffeine have the same amount of caffeine in there. And so when people go and come out of race and be like, I cramped and I don't know why. It's like, well, how many gels did you take that had caffeine? They're like, well, I had six of them. It's like, well, that's 55 milligrams per gel. How much are you used to taking? Well, you're a 120-pound female versus the 240-pound guy next to you. You took in the same gels, but it didn't impact you the same way. So, yeah, it's easy to market something to say, I have this plan. It's a template. It's one size fits all. What that generally means is it only hits a certain population and the fringe is always, always marginalized. And so I don't like giving just absolutes with distance running because the people who do either don't understand it or understand it so well, they realize it's too costly to individualize. So I'm just going to slap a template on it and call it a day. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's a mini rant, but I want people to understand that we're not being wishy-washy. We're trying not to misguide you by taking the route of convenience. I agree with that. And I'm glad you said that. I mean, of course you understand, like people have to give you some sort of general baseline, which is yeah. why these principles are created. And, and maybe that's for the average human, just like 80, 20 principle would be, those aren't, you don't have to be on the head 80, 20, you can be 70, 30, some are 60, 40, some are 90, 10, anywhere in between. But as a generality, it's going to maybe cover the most bases effectively for the most people, but that doesn't necessarily mean you who's specifically asking this question. So I'm glad you had said that, but I just think like, as you mentioned, like progress isn't linear, uh, and nor should your volume increase just look like a perfect little graph. It should Mm -hmm. actually have some ups and downs and peaks and valleys and, uh, all of that along the way. And so, 
as long as you're taking some down weeks. That's all I care about. That's all I want to get across. Yeah. Into the new runner, I think if there was a template, it would be try to run a half hour three times per week and then build that up to 45 minutes. And I don't care how many weeks it takes to get there and then build that up to 60. And once you can do 60 minutes three times a week, add in a fourth day if you want it or start Mm -hmm. adding quality. But some runners, if they're good at running or they're just naturally talented or they've done it a while, that progression might take them 12 days (laughs) to build up through that. Mm -hmm. Other people, it might take 12 weeks, but get to the point you can run three hours a week with no issues and then reach back out and say, here, here's where I'm at. How should I progress now? Yeah, I like it. Uh, do you want me to keep rolling with some or do you want to go back and forth? Uh, you have more than I do. You can take a few. Uh, Josh Sullivan. Sully. Back from February. Uh, hot take for a Q&A or just a side topic. I haven't read any of these in advance, so I don't know what, what these are about, by the way. Um, so Garmin released the Phoenix 7 with nine different models. Not bad priced for a high dollar. Uh, I spent hours on hours YouTubing and comparing on websites. Big question in Garmin watches, which is best for running? The 945, the 945 LTE, or the Phoenix 7 series? Does weight or size of watch affect... Uh, hold on. Does weight or size of watch affect running or the arm it's on or as in shoulder muscle or arm swing motion? Do the biometrics matter? So many in the 945 LT in Phoenix. Da, da, da. This continues to go on. Uh, he seems to be very concerned about the weight. Let's stop there. There's more. There's a lot here, but let's stop there. Well, first of all, what does a runner need? Nothing. An egg timer and a track. Yeah. I mean, when, when I, all the way through the start of high school, I would look at the time on the stove and then I'd head out for my run and I'd come back in and check the time on the stove. And then I'd calculate how many miles I think I did. Did the same thing. And then, then, uh, what was next? MapQuest became a thing. (laughs) I'd use MapQuest to see how many miles I actually got. And then the stove timer, how long it was, and then divide it out, do some math and find out how fast did I run today? doesn't matter. For years, the very best technology available on this planet was the Timex Ironman Chrono Watch. Mm-hmm. I had four different versions of those. You just have a start-stop split. I still have them. So, yeah. no, a runner doesn't need anything. What you would like to have is a watch that tells you time. So, if you're already splurging for a GPS watch, any single GPS watch on this planet can tell you distance, pace, time, can take splits at this point all of them are better than the first 10 years of gps watches that we used to love and rave about so and i've been reading gps watch reviews since probably 2012 and it's hilarious the things that i used to put stock in now that people just take for granted or don't even use anymore because it's worthless tech but it used to be a game changer so i'm not a big proponent of buying huge high-end watches unless you just like it or you're spending a ton of time in the mountains or off off the beaten track. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the biggest pay upgrade in a watch is if it has the altimeter built into it. I think that's the one thing that I think is worth paying more for, meaning your watch will tell you in real time how much elevation you've gained and what mm-hmm. altitude you are currently at versus lower great, not lower, just lower price point watches. You'll have to upload it to your Strava and then find out after the fact. For me, I'm type A enough, and I know you are too. Like we were checking our watches a lot this weekend, and we could know right then 
how much vert we had and the goal for the day was X. And I knew I had to do that last loop to get 5,000 feet of gain. And that meant something to me and I did it. And that's peace of mind. And so I think no matter what you're doing, if like you're somebody who like those things matter to, I think the first big jump is looking at a watch that either has an altimeter in it and tells you real time or doesn't. And for me, I'm always going to choose one that has the altimeter in it. And so then you're looking at your upper cost profile watches at mm-hmm. this at this point. And that's that's how I bake my make my decisions solely. And then all the other features are just like icing on the cake, in my opinion. If you're doing some yeah. backcountry navigation, our Phoenix is fantastic. It tells me where I am in this earth and in real time. And I could probably get myself out if I'm lost, no matter where I'm at, which is very convenient. Um, you know, does that matter to you? Does your life matter to you? You have to decide yeah. those things. To me, if you don't trail run, there's no reason to ever spend close, you know, over $200 on a watch. There's really no reason. And if you're in the mountains, then you have the choice to make. This is the first time I've had a watch that has an altimeter on it, and it's pretty awesome. It's sweet, isn't it? It'll be tough to go back down to a normal watch, but then you just go back to doing the things that I always used to do, which is map the run out early, know how much each climb is, and do mental math as I go. It's yep. a little less convenient, but me, I'm a, I like the niceties in some things. Watches don't do it for me, and like Josh asked about, the size correlates to the features. If they ever could put an altimeter and a barometer in the Forerunner series, I would never leave that. Because that's all I want. The si- I mean, I have a woman's Phoenix because I don't want the size of the men's Phoenix. Mm-hmm. I don't want the weight in the size. And the bigger you are and stronger you are, the less it's going to throw you off. If you're a small person, then a big watch probably will make your arm feel weird for a while. But you get used to it. I've never noticed. Yeah, I always used to be concerned I'd get the smaller faced watch. And now it's just the ease of looking at a bigger watch while you're running. I don't, I've never thought about my left arm dragging or being more fatigued. It's, it's really insubstantial. I think it took me three days and I stopped noticing it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, 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 the mechanics inside are a bit heavier with all the technology. So it's a dense watch. Yeah. Um, if you have the, t- the fitness and the gear to ski, hike, climb, whatever, far enough away from civilization that your life is in your hands, I think it's worth having a device that can save you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where the need versus want divides. I want to know my altitude in real time. I need to survive if I go off on a solo mountain trek. And since I don't do that very often, I wouldn't need the watch. So, I, I, I mean, you know who you are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you have to take, uh, if you have to let friends know where you're going before you leave, you should have a, a really big, nice watch. Yep. I agree with that. Seems like if you want to get that altimeter and those functions, you're looking at 500 bucks. And yeah. to to Josh's 500 bucks or more. And to Josh's question, um, asking about the Forerunner 945, 945 LTE, or the Phoenix 7 series, all of those would have altimeters in them. My old 945 did not, or 935. Does the 45 have it? I don't know. That's why I can't speak knowledge of you. The 35 did not. 935 it had the altimeter but i couldn't find out where i was on earth in real time and so yeah i don't know we can move on from that one though you guys talk a lot about periodization and i understand the gist of it but i'm wondering how you go about structuring the order if any to it if you were starting a good athlete with some running background from scratch and there wasn't a specific race to prep what order would you go in example hill block then speed then staying power strength recovery etc it doesn't matter is there rhyme or reason to any of it or is it strictly for your goals and some sharpening in areas before an event 
also when you decide to throw in a recovery block? It's a good question. Mm-hmm. You, you want me to take a stab at it? Yeah, stab that baby. Well, I think regardless as to your uh, your goal races, um, our principle doesn't really change. So whether you have a mountain race coming off in the future or a flat, fast 5K or um, an ultra event, whatever the heck it may be, you know, as we say, you always want to take the races that are most important to you and start working on those skills immediately. Um, now, that doesn't mean going out and killing yourself doing those skills. It just means getting time and doing those skills. So you pick what's coming up that really means the most to you. Try to reduce down to a couple of A races and then still lay the foundation as we talk about through base training to start and introducing threshold work, but on the correct terrain of the correct duration of your A races, whenever they fall in the year, however far away, and then start to layer in more stimulus. But um, that's going to be like my super generic answer to start, and then I'm sure you'll play cleanup from there. I think I'm going to go generic too. Kids okay. watched a movie the other day, early Dwayne Johnson, Ooh. The Rock, when I believe he still had some hair going on. It was the race to which mountain. Okay. <laughs> Not a very great movie, but it got me thinking. I believe that the ultimate goal of athletes, endurance athletes, is just the race to your aerobic ceiling. And so that's where I'd start a runner. I would say the earlier you can max out your aerobic capabilities, the better. I wouldn't worry too much about too much periodization early on. I wouldn't worry about stacking in hills versus speed versus threshold. Um, I would keep hills throughout there because I think it's one of the best ways to build up your aerobic capabilities and the power in your legs. But I would just be trying to, at all costs, max out my aerobic capabilities. Build up volume. Build up time on feet. Build up efficiency of running. I would be doing lots of cross training so I could get my volume up early and then sub in the percentage of running into my volume and just keep speed maintenance along the way. That's for a newbie. Worry about your aerobic development for as long as you feel like you're still improving. And then after that, yeah, I I think it's sports specific. We're we're very clear on here that we think you can spend most of your time working in your, your threshold range. That you don't have to go super intense very often until race-specific blocks require it and sharpen down for it. But most athletes that we know of who are adult runners aren't running the mile. Very few are training even for a 5K. And once you're above 5K, do you really even need all that much sharpening? Even race pace stuff is slower than VO2 max, so... I don't know. I don't see too much need for the average person to do crazy sharp periodization. I think it's general periodization. So race to which mountain and then start playing around once you get there. Yeah. Nice analogy. Uh, when you say like a ro- work on your like aerobic capacity or aerobic ceiling, yeah. I, I think some people are going to still be like, what, how do you do that? So why yeah. don't you just like, yeah, explain that quickly. So what I'm saying is that you want to max out your ability to derive as much speed and power without being anaerobic. And you do that by spending a lot of time being aerobic. Being aerobic means not being anaerobic. And it's as simple as that. So your aerobic threshold, you can develop, you you can analyze where is my aerobic ceiling, that aerobic threshold. We've talked about the aerobic threshold test you can do. You can Google aerobic threshold test. It's really, really simple to do. And you just stay there or under for a couple of years. Now, Not everyone has to do that, but you literally could just do that. 
you look at most of the best athletes in the world started building theirs young through play and through sport and recreation. And and that's all you do. So you spend time on feet. You're going to develop mitochondria density. You're going to develop capillary bed density. You're going to develop your ability to, to process oxygen efficiently. You're going to develop a more efficient running form and a lighter foot strike and faster cadence. But most of that's just a byproduct of spending time on feet running aerobically. And you can still build all those pathways on the bike, hiking, elliptical, whatever you want to do. And you just run as much of that percentage as you can. That's it. It's really, really simple when it comes down to it because all these scientists would do it one way in a lab, but the kids who grew up running to or from school or in Nordic countries, skate skiing all over the place or classic skiing, they get the same results as people who are setting out with the mission to do that because your body doesn't know what your mission is. It just does its, its biological processes with or without your consent. You explained that well. Thank you. Yeah. Should we move on? Let's move right on. Um, John May says, uh, one more question, if that's okay to submit. Um, oh, he, okay. We, he alludes to having a first question, but I only see a second one. Um, it says, I've heard that beer assists in recovery after running. I've recently given up alcohol, but like NA beers. <laughs> Would those have a similar effect? Thanks, guys. <laughs> how, do you, how do you untie that? How do you untie that one? Someone who really likes beer or likes selling beer told you that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there components to beer like carbs that your body can source and use for recovery? Sure. Is beer a magic elixir? I don't care what anyone will tell you. Alcohol is never a component of better recovery. All it's going to do is slightly poison your body and weaken your sleep. And those are two things that generally are not recommended for best practice recovery. They don't say, hey, poison yourself just a little bit and make sure you don't get deep REM cycle sleep. That Mm -hmm. is your ticket to recovery. So no, alcohol does not. Alcohol is a recovery inhibitor. Yeah, um, I can speak to this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I took the floor. (laughs) In some regard, um, the the more alcohol I drank, the worse my performances went. Um, There's no doubt about that. Uh, And I think mostly because of the sleep factor amongst Mm -hmm. everything else on top of extra calories and all that garbage. But yes, there are caloric replenishment properties to beer. And I also think the immediate... uh, psychosomatic alleviation of pain due to the way alcohol affects your nervous system can make you feel like you're on top of the world shortly after being completely wrecked by a workout or a race. It's like, I don't feel anything in my legs and I could go run through a brick wall right now, even though I ran a half marathon three hours ago, but that's Mm -hmm. not real folks. That's just fluff. That's rainbows and butterflies and date, you know, unicorns. It doesn't work long-term it just tricks you temporarily into thinking that you're invincible, but you're wrong. That's the only way I could see it helping recovery in a sense. And really, that'd be yeah. more recovery for the mind than the body. Um, but, uh, yep, yeah, that's not true. It ain't true, folks. We have a strange fixation with alcohol in our country. I guess in our world. But it be- it's become manly to drink beer and cool to be good at drinking alcohol. I, I don't know why. And, and I'm someone who enjoys beer. I like drinks in general. And 
thanks to, to you and your journey, I have essentially given all that up. I've had a drink here or there, but that's, it's just not a part of my life anymore. And Lisa's actually done it with me, which has made it really easy. You know, and that started the day you and I talked and things have improved, even though I wasn't what anyone would consider a drinker. My life's just become a little bit more pleasant, but post race it all, even, even when I was still in the, yeah, I really love a post race beer. It always made me really laugh and shake my head when I'd see these races promoting their Norma Tech boots afterwards and free massages and the IV drips for people and all that right after you grab your free post-race beer. <laughs> like You can't talk about how much you're putting an emphasis on recovery when you're also providing free alcohol to people the moment they cross a marathon line. It just doesn't compute to me. So no, there is, I just can't, I can't say that there's any benefit to drinking alcohol as a recovery aid, unless it's in your head. You're in that beer. I mean, there's, there's merit to it. You know, you hear athletes say, I have a beer the night before a race to calm me down, all of those things. And ultimately, even if it does affect your sleep less, that how you're going to race has probably already been set in stone before you drink that beer, right? That's just habit. That's you yeah. talking yourself into it. But on the purely recovery sense, you're absolutely right. It does not help you. So in fact, switching to NA beer uh, for you, sir, um, great. Getting a little hydration after your workouts, a little carb and calorie yeah. action. You'll be good. Carbs and calories without any poison or a, a very minuscule amount. I think like the thing is like, okay, if you have – like people are talking in, in general sense. Like if you have a beer after a hard workout, is a beer going to set you back? No, I don't think it will. If you hydrate the rest of the day or that night, you have a normal meal and you stop at a beer – I think that small amount of poison, Christ, we're poisoning our body with lactate and lactic acid at times uh, during workouts. That's a a self-poisoning of sorts, but we do it in small doses and then pull the stimulus and we're fine for it, right? But like a beer, maybe not a beer. I don't know if that's going to crush you. I don't see how it's going to help you, but I think it's just then we're just talking a mute point at at this point. That's all. Yeah. Can you survive it? Absolutely. Will it be a net gain for you as an athlete? No, of course not. Lindsay Smith. Hey, guys, I have another question for you. So I've been rocking the heart rate training, and it is starting to pay off. I like hearing that, Lindsay. Today I ran 13K run with an average heart rate of 132. My time was 1 hour 24. A month ago I did the same run at an average heart rate of 135, and my time was 1 hour 40 minutes. So she cut off 16 minutes and had three beats per minute less heart rate. Now I know these times are slow for you, but I can definitely see big improvements in myself. So my question is, first of all, that's great improvement, isn't it? It's fantastic. No one should ever feel like they need to put a disclaimer in their times or performances because it only can be compared to previous you. That's it. Yep. Lindsay, you're freaking crushing it. So my question is, for my first race, which is a marathon on May 1st, we got to this one in time, Bracken. <laughs> oh, we gave her 12 full days of notice. <laughs> uh, so my question is, for my first race, which is a marathon on May 1st, how do I run it? Do I run it in a certain zone or do I pick a pace and drop it as I go? Where do I start when making a race plan? Question mark. Well, this one still applies. It's still in time. So pat yes. on the back to us. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think that there are three categories of marathoners. Those looking to complete, those looking to do their best, and those looking to compete. 
and maximize performance. I guess do your best kind of sounds like that, but by that I mean do a good job. There's completion, there's doing well, and then there's competition. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking to compete, the only way to truly pace it is to have done a lot of marathon prep work, a lot of speed work, and dial in exactly what you think your marathon heart rate, your marathon pace, your marathon exertion really is. And if you haven't done all of that, to me, the easiest thing for any long effort, whether it's a marathon, whether it's a 50K, whether it's a 50 miler, is start out and give yourself an aerobic threshold limiter. For a marathon, maybe a couple beats over if you really wanted to, because you can always pick it up. It's a long enough race that even if you spend 10 miles going a little bit too easy, you can crank it down for 13. 13 is a lot of time to crank it down. You'll be just fine. Six, six, 16. 16. In my mind, I was thinking get through the halfway point. Okay, but you said 10 miles. Yeah, it doesn't sound smart. Keeping you in check. Luckily, I am pretty consistent in my statement that math is not, (laughs) not, not a strength of mine. I got you. 10 plus 13 is 26.2. Sure is. Get it twisted. (laughs) So that's where I would start. Figuring out your aerobic threshold heart rate and let that be your guide for a while. Yeah, um, here's the thing. I don't think that we have much to work with with your data, Lindsay. Granted that this is showing that you have markedly improved aerobic capacity. You're not racing or going to race in this area. So it's getting in touch more with your, you know, your aerobic threshold and your lactate threshold and now starting to understand where your limiters are on the high end. Sounds like you're going to be ready to go. Now, these are good markers. These, this, you know, That's a good sign of improved fitness, but it doesn't really tell me how to tell you how to approach this marathon from a heart rate perspective other than in generalities, which means stay five beats below lactate threshold and don't breach that till the last 30 minutes and you may just be set, right? But I don't know those numbers. So then it comes down to exactly what Bracken said, like starting to understand your body, understand pacing, doing marathon style type workouts, predictors, things like that. But based on just these recovery effort heart rates, I can't give you anything more than you should work harder than that when you're out there. (laughs) Right? You're right. Mm -hmm. But but I'm going to try because we've been, we've been, uh, not wishy-washy, but we've been choosing the, the correct answer, which is, I'm sorry, I can't prescribe over the phone kind of thing. Sure. Let's do the opposite. Let's look into the numbers we do have. Okay. Did you say that was 15K run or 16K? Uh, how about 13K, Mr. Numbers? I'm a numbers savant, Kurt. Sure 13K, all right? At average of 133, am I remembering that? Well, she had one. her first run was at 132, and then her second – or her first run was at 135, and her second was at 132, and her second okay. was significantly faster. Okay, at 13K, so we're looking at – what would that be? Seven, eight, almost eight. Yeah. Okay. So the question to ask yourself then, you said Stephanie? Um, no, I think I said Lindsay. <laughs> I'm getting all close. these right. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay. <laughs> I have not been right on a single thing in this equation. Brad, I can take a nap and let's start again in like 20 you know, minutes. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't hammer another big workout this week. I'm clearly in a fog. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Becky. What you want to do here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Becky, listen up here. Uh, Frankie, you need to ask yourself, what does 130 feel like to me for seven and a half miles? When you got done with that run, could you have done that three more times? If the answer is yes, then that's how you start your race out. That's how you start it out. I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, because if you can confidently say, I could have done that three more times, then let's prove it. Let's do that once in the race, and then maybe do it again. Get through the halfway point with 130, and then if you feel like, I can get to work now, get to work. And if you don't feel like, I can get to work, now you've got your number. You've been seeing the splits you've been hitting. Now it becomes, uh, I'm going to fight that split. I'm going to fight to hit that all the way out. So that's how I would start. If the answer is, I'm not sure if I could hold that 130 for a full 26 miles, then bump it down again. Bump it down to 125. Heck, if the answer is no, bump it down to 120. I mean, at some point we're walking, but that's okay because it doesn't sound like you're trying to qualify for the trials or hit your PR. It sounds like you want to do a good job. Your past completion, now you just want to do a good job on it. So set yourself up for good, which is in a distance race, you can always pick up the pace, but you can't do a damn thing about it once you start to bleed out. Hey, if uh, if Frankie keeps up that uh, rate of improvement, she'll be qualifying for the trials, Bracken. That's how running works, completely linear improvement. And it was, is it Lindsay? It's is that Lindsay. what we're? Yeah. Lindsay, um, I'm sorry. And, and you know what really it comes down to? I see a lot of time with first-time marathoners, and this is just what I've experienced through other people, not myself is half the time, like they may be even aerobically conditioned to go out there and run a higher heart rate. But by the time they get to the 18, 20 miles, their legs are so damaged from all that cement mm-hmm. running that they can't even access their upper limo- le- le- level fitness. And it's not because they're not capable aerobically. It's because they've taken so much damage already and they weren't prepared for that. And then they can't get mm-hmm. their heart rate where it needs to be because their legs are smoked and they're forced to slow down. And then their heart rate goes with it. You can see it in people who even bonk in the marathon. Like you think, oh, they bonk, their heart rate's way up and they're just screwed. No, when people bonk, a lot of times you see the opposite happen. That heart rate dips because there's so much damage. They've over revved and now they're just bleeding out and they can't do anything about it and Mm -hmm. so there's like also that side of the coin where then it says like okay like you could argue both ways like go let her rip because your legs are going to give out on you at some point regardless or play it safe but either way you're going to take damage and i think that's going to be just as big of a deciding factor as whatever the heck your heart rate's doing i think that's the point i'm making yeah heart rate matters right up until it doesn't exactly and there are so many other factors in a marathon i mean at the pace you're looking to be running which is let's say I don't know. Are we looking at four and a half hours for that marathon or is that more? Well, why don't you take a stab at it, Mr. Yeah, I mean, you know me. I didn't even, I don't even remember the the distance we were talking. We're talking seven and a half miles in how much time? I think she got down to an hour and 26 or hour Hour 26. So, yeah, I mean, if you're looking between, once you're over three hours of effort, and if you're looking between four and six hours, fueling's as important as damage, which is as important as heart rate. So now there's a three-headed monster of things that can jump up and bite you. But what heart rate leaving that lower early on does is it limits how hard you're pounding, and it increases your ability to uptake calories. The faster you run, the more damage you're going to take to some extent. It's not always true, but most likely, and the harder it is to get calories into your body. So marathon's so long, you can always make up time. I agree. Yep. Our our number one American finisher in 208, uh, Scott Fauble, was a minute and a half behind our lead marathon guys in Boston at the halfway mark. And he ended up running to the second, the exact same split for his second half marathon as his first. Incredible. And just rolled everyone down. Incredible. 
minute and a half, you can't see them. They're out of sight. Mm-hmm. And he had more elevation gain in that uh, back half of the marathon. Yeah. Seemed more impressive. Uh, Joe Gates. Joe Gates. Gates, yeah. Hello, Joe. We've we've met once. Um, question for the next Q&A. Not sure if this has already been addressed, so sorry if it's a repeat. But how do you guys stay in base phase? Or more accurately, how define base phase versus whatever comes next? Is simply amount of time spent in threshold zones? I think he's missing some words here. Is it simply amount of time spent in threshold zones per week? Random follow-up question. Did Hunter ever go for the Clydesdale Marathon record? In reverse order, no. Not yet. No, not yet. And per a recent conversation with him, uh, I don't know if he's going to be. We have to catch up on our Hunter conversations. Yeah, because he called us both last week while we were recording. I called him back that day and we had a quick chat. I've talked to him twice this week now, and we need to catch up. Yeah, we need to just catch up with him on air because he's got he's got good stuff always. But I think right after High Rocks, we should uh, we should talk with him. Mm-hmm. So no, no Clydesdale Marathon record. How do you stay in base phase? How do you define base phase versus whatever comes next? Is it cut and dry? I think that's what he's asking. I don't think it's cut and dry, but I also don't think base phase like just ends like the chapter of a book. To me, base phase is anything that's preparing you for what's to come next. And it generally means spicier, more anaerobic work. So you can stay in base phase for a long time and still do spicy anaerobic work if you space it out enough. Spicy anaerobic work starts to erode your aerobic capacity and starts to sharpen you, air quotes on that, when you start stacking them closer together. When they're spaced out, there's really no negative to them. You just also don't reap the benefits of stacking them closer together. So how do you know when you're, is it, I mean, if you're talking about clearly defined, it's more smooth transitions? I guess. I mean, generally, the way you know you're leaving base phase is the title of your training block changes. (laughs) (laughs) That's about it. Right? Like, I have this thing I call transitional base or base 2.0. You could argue either side of the line for what that actually is. Base is a, is, it's really just a, a placeholder term that means you're working on your aerobic capacity and you're building back up your ability to handle volume. That's as much of anything as just being able to physically handle what comes next. Yeah, I don't think it's cut and dry at all. I think base phase means you're spending the majority of your training and even in quotes quality work still staying aerobic. And when you start to transition, some of your harder days, we will call it, start to, you know, get up towards your lactate threshold potentially or beyond, but you're mostly, but again, there's exceptions in a base phase. You can do a little spicy stuff in, in your threshold or sharpening phases. You will still do some longer, slow, steady stuff. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's no cut and dry lines. It's just like, I look at the days that matter. And even in base phase, it might be like, I'm going to go let it rip today, but I'm not going to go anaerobic. Of course, I'm just going to run a little harder today. That would all still be like aerobic focused work. And I just think it's mostly for me, it comes down to what my quality days are doing. Like twice a week, no matter yep. what phase I'm in, I'm like, I'm going to do something with these days. What am I going to do with it? That's yeah. For me, that's what it comes down to. And it's important to know that it's not a switch that gets flipped. Like I played basketball this morning. There are a couple times I went up, down, up, quick in transition. I, that's anaerobic. Did I leave base phase if I was in that? No, you didn't just leave that. And I think it's important to avoid the only way to have a switch that gets flipped is to do all aerobic and then the next week start up doing heavy anaerobic. 
Like that is a switch being flipped from base to whatever's next. And it's actually the worst. That sets you up for the highest likelihood of being injured or getting burnt out or overtrained or just really fatigued. So actually in a perfect world, there would be a gradual progression where you wouldn't be able to exactly say the moment you left base phase, you'd be able to target the week or weeks where you transitioned out of it. Because the more abruptly you change your training stimulus, the more likely there is for something to go wrong physically. Yeah. I mean, and a simple way to really put it for me anyways, is like, am I coming close to race pace or faster in my workouts often than I'm probably out of base phase. If I'm not trying to approach or breach race pace in my workouts, I'm probably still more towards base phase. For me, it has to do with dipping in and out of like as fast or faster than race pace work versus not even getting close to it. I have to yeah. keep it simple that way. Yeah. You want me to keep rolling with some of these? I, I, I'll jump in here now. Cool. That's a long one. Yeah, I like those. What is the difference between being in great shape from a vanity sense to being in great shape for performance? Does it translate? For example, someone get, that gets in great shape from Peloton workouts, their local studio group fitness class, or even CrossFit workouts isn't the same shape as someone that periodizes well. Why? I'm pretty sure I know why, but would like to learn about it. Two, if you were to build a perfect athlete, how would you structure their training? For example, I've been watching the second season of the Spartan Games and would like to know how you'd prep someone to take down Hunter, Atkins, or Kent. Seems like it doesn't matter how good someone is at CrossFit or military-type training. They get their ass handed to them by OCR or hybrid athletes every time. Is that the structure of the events, or is this possibly the best way to train? All right, I'm going to start with the first one, which is... I, I, I see these as two totally different questions. What is the difference between in great shape from a vanity sense to being in great shape for performance? And I would say that the... If you're talking vanity, it has nothing to do with shape or fitness. It has visual, aesthetic appearance, and there is no tie to that. I think we all know several people, or at least one, who just looks like a monster and isn't. Mm -hmm. All show, no go. And that's the difference between aesthetics, pure aesthetics, and pure fitness or being in shape. So I don't think there is necessarily any correlation. I think there's zero correlation. And there are some monsters out there who just are rocking the dad bod. Mm -hmm. Absolute monsters who you would look at and think, I could do, I could put that person in the ground with no effort and they will just run the legs right off you or pedal them off you or roll them off you, sometimes even lift them off you. So no, I don't, I don't think that there's any discernible connection between appearance and performance. I think there's none. In fact, if you chase one too much it can actually impact the other one because show muscle does not equal go muscle. And all you should want as an athlete is go muscle. I think there's 0% crossover, but I mean, somebody that looks like in their fantastic shape can actually be in great fitness and go race well. But For I sure. think the, I mean, and sure they're more likely than the average human that walks by you on the street to maybe have a shot at performance standards. Mm -hmm. But I mean, my goodness, I, I lived in the gym world and some of the most aesthetically pleasing to look at humans, male and female, couldn't run a mile. I mean, they couldn't run a mile because all they did was gym work and ate barely any carbs and walked around half emaciated yet hit strength work. So they were very lean and full, but also empty all the time and did mm -hmm. no lick of cardio. That's not a balanced athlete. Now they achieved maybe their goal by how they looked, but 
my goodness, it doesn't translate. I mean, anybody, in my opinion, that looks good in whatever sport you're analyzing is merely a byproduct of their training, not a byproduct of their attempt at aesthetics. I think if you... And now this is only 38-year-old Kirk talking, not Bachelor, 28-year-old Kirk talking. Like, if you decide to do anything in the gym or in training in which all you, your only reason for doing it is aesthetics, that's okay. But making all of your decisions based on that is an absolute mistake. I mean, say, I'm doing this, and how is it translating to what my goal performance-wise is? And if you don't have an answer for that, again, that's fine. But the majority of your work sh- or your your work should be with purpose. And I'm promising you, if you are staying dedicated to your training, you're going to look how you want to look, no matter how many bench press or bicep curls you do. It's yeah. Ryan Atkins, for example, has one of the you know picturesque physiques. He's got broad shoulders yet a lean waist. He's ripped yet he's not too thin, not too big. Just from like general sense, the guy doesn't touch a dumbbell. The guy does real movements, applicable work, and is always doing things, and his physique is a byproduct of his training. And so um, I think I think people, half of their, let's say they work out eight hours a week. I think half the people listening to this podcast, especially in the hybrid space or the CrossFit space, are wasting four of their eight hours on aesthetics that is not going to translate to their race performance. And it's kind of a bummer, but it's true. Yeah. A lot of what you're doing is wasting your time if you, all you care about is performance. And you nailed it. The, the big issue is that when you look at stud athletes, often they're studs physically. But it's a like you said, it's a byproduct. If you set out to train the best possible way to be a stud athlete, oftentimes the byproduct is you look like a monster. But if you set out to look like that athlete, there's a real good chance you could pull it off and not contain a single one of the athletic attributes that those people built up over the years. Yeah. So it's the why. The why behind every exercise matters. To answer the second part of that question, being really good at a Peloton workout or really good at a spin bike workout or getting into that, that's actually that's fitness you're building because you can't aesthetically fake your way through a spin bike workout. You can get really good at a certain type of training and not have great overall fitness. But once you start adding performance into it, there is some sort of fitness there. And I think it's commendable no matter what style of fitness you choose to improve at. I mean, but I will say with experience, I went through some bouts where I did some high-level road biking post-college. I was doing some triathlon training, bumped into a bike cycling group, went out with them. And I just cycled for like six weeks. I stopped running and I was considering hopping into races. Mm-hmm. Um, really got into it. I went and watched some races. And I was like, I think I could be pretty good at this. And then my buddy, uh, Derek and I decided to go out for an eight mile run. We've been training. We've been doing three hour bike rides. We've been doing bike ride intervals. We've been burning ourselves up with hill repeats, even like all sorts of stuff. It was the longest and worst eight miles of my entire freaking life. I will never forget how shitty I felt on that run. Sure. I felt good for five minutes. It was unbelievable. The lack of crossover. Unbelievable. I struggled to run paces that I would have done in my sleep because of the lack of specificity. Mm-hmm. However, that was a wake-up call for me. And even three weeks later, because of all the aerobic work I had been doing on the bike, it's almost like I super sped up my acclimation process. And once my muscles got used to firing properly and taking damage, I wasn't far where I left off. So Miss Peloton or Mr. Peloton or Mr. CrossFit might only be three weeks away of specificity to start really popping. 
So they're setting themselves up and laying a foundation, but you're going to need to get specific at some point. But that's not for not. That's not all for not, so to speak. So you could yeah. take that and do something with it that's helpful. Um, but it's going to be a rough uh, introductory phase from my personal experience when you start to transition. For sure. Yeah. And, and I don't think I could put it any better myself, so I'm not even going to try. Final part of that. Why is it that all these other professional athletes that they bring into the Spartan games don't beat the hybrid athletes at it? I mean, it's twofold. The first is that they're doing endurance competitions. And at the end of the day, it is so much easier for a decently strong athlete to get strong than it is for a powerhouse athlete to run. It's just, it's never going to change. The the really solid around, all around athlete is just going to always get slightly beat in the specific sports and open up massive amounts of time on endurance events. And it's really hard to score endurance events. If you look at power-based events, like the heavy rock lift they did, even like Ryan Atkins, who doesn't do power work, was able to lift up all the stones, I think. Maybe he... Maybe not the Maybe last one. Maybe missed the last the one. Yeah. But in the 50K, he probably finished several hours ahead of the other person. Like there's no comparison, yet the performance gap is the same in terms of actual performance, but the way it plays out on paper and visually is just there's such a disparity. So one, they're doing the wrong tests. At the end of the day, they're still doing so many more races than they're doing power events. I mean, they did Spartan Cross twice in season one plus an endurance swim, plus an endurance bike, plus an endurance run, plus a weighted endurance run up a mountain, you know, compared to a heavy rock, the deck of strong and tug of war and wrestling isn't a strength competition. So there's just, it's structured incorrectly. But then the other side, I think that hybrid training is the best all around training for all around fitness because you become a master of none, but you become a really good jack of all trades. I'm not saying it's the best form of working out, but if you wanted to be the best all around athlete you could be, which includes endurance sports, hybrid OCR racer probably is the best well-rounded approach. Yeah. When you look at Spartan games, um, up to this point, I don't know, there've been four events, I think, or maybe six. I don't know where we're at when we're listening to this, but only one has been mildly uh, brief, and that would be the wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Deca Heavy, I think it was Deca Heavy they did, not Deca Strong. I don't remember. Deca Heavy. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It was one in like 13 minutes. That's an elite level 5K as far as elevated heart rate. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't even cater to these monsters a ton. I mean, sure, pushing the assault bike is a little easier if you have more body mass, moving some of the weight around a little bit, but it doesn't even come close to making up the ability to have like aerobic stay power. And so and then wrestling was technique driven and yes body mass matters but um what what this games really should be i think spartan games has proved like okay we're the best our athletes that whatever i think there's like some secret under you know like underlying message to get across that we will rule out and we will because we're simply more well-rounded as you said bracken spartan games needs to be a conglomerate of ocr figures that come together and and find out who the best Spartan is of them all, because really you're sending out a bunch of people there who are ill-prepared and it's not their fault. You can't handle four days of endurance events if you're a power athlete and even expect to perform remotely close to your best. It's an unfair competition. I like it because that's the kind of athlete I am, but it's setting up 
two thirds of those athletes for failure. It's not a fair fight. Mm -hmm. Well, think about the damage. If Mike Wardian fails out on the second rock, he fights for 10 seconds and can't do it and moves on. Whereas an honest attempt at a 50 K, if you've got to make it 10 miles, think of the damage that like a 250 pound strength athlete takes throughout that. And now has to go do the next thing. It just compounds. So it's not even the same punishment for not doing well. And there's not the same number of power events to functional events to endurance events. The only way to make it a true competition was that every skill set is represented equally and you're judged by how far behind the leader you are in each one. Mm -hmm. So if there was a deadlift competition, taking fourth wouldn't give you equal points. It would be what percentage percentage behind. And then same thing with the ultramarathon. And then you could really see how do we stack up. Um, Or you could even do placement, but you'd have to complete everything. It just wouldn't. If you don't have the same exact number of skills represented equally, it doesn't work. You're sending those power athletes into a fight with both arms tied behind their back. Yeah. So what you're doing. Especially since you start out with an endurance event and then another endurance event and then wrestling. And you're like, okay, now we'll let you do your thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not, it's not a fair fight. Nope, not at all. I think the setup is, uh, we, we love, I think there's some like, subliminal enjoyment of watching these big yoked beefy dudes just get smoked and there's some weird sadistic side of whoever put this together to be like yeah like power to the average size man like i don't know i i think it's great i love by the way i love the shows i love the event i think it's i think it's great i just don't i don't think they chose i don't think it's a fight that anybody can win other than an endurance athlete Mm -hmm. that has some sort of strength and they've they've tried to do this for decades. Mm. What what were those those uh, Olympians versus pro baseball players running the hundred meter dash and doing soccer and random stuff? And then there was uh, pros versus Joes, and then CrossFit said we're going to crown the fittest. And there's always this search to crown the best overall athlete. Decathlon says this is the greatest all this the greatest athlete alive. You know Bruce Jenner was the world's greatest athlete for years, mm-hmm. but was he? It just depends what definition you're using. And no one has yet come up with a definition that truly means anything. Fittest on earth for CrossFit means world's best CrossFitter. Kind of. It really means I'm one of the 150 or 200 best CrossFitters who gets to the games. And then I'm the best person at that. Because CrossFit is so varied. Once you get to the games, it's actually just like the extreme oddball events that they put in. So Mm. even fittest on earth doesn't guarantee who the best crossfitter is it's who survived the tournament is one of the best crossfitters and then is really good at this oddball event spartan games it doesn't find the best athlete i think the only way to find the best athlete would be to identify like the 100 or however many best in every sport that you wanted and then the best overall athletes in that sport even if they're not the best at that sport And then bring them in and do like 50 or 100 different competitions and rank everyone one through a thousand in every single event and see who was the best across the board. Mm -hmm. And no one's going to finance that project and no one's going to sit through that and no one's going to sign up for that because you're going to get injured or like you'd have to do archery and bowling and swimming and rowing and sailing and like dodgeball and baseball and basketball and football and gymnastics. You'd have to do everything, NASCAR, like anything that could be considered a sport. That's the only way to do it. And that will never happen. 
Yeah, I think the only way in Spartan games, as you mentioned, is percentage behind the winner, whether that's like time-based or weight-based or some sort of mm-hmm. pre-decided and completely subjective formula that they decide to assign to it, which still would leave gray area. But I think that's as close as you could get. Um, should we move on? Yeah. I think that anyone claiming fittest or best of blank that's an all-around title is just selling something. Hey, listen, it's entertaining. I have no problem with it. I, just I watch it every time. Fight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll always watch it, but it's a it's a farce. Every time I watch every episode of Spartan Games, I'm like, I should be there. I should be there. I think so. I should be there. Drives me nuts. Um, Aaron Haw Colloran says, hey, guys, Kirk mentioned waiting for a course map in your last Q&A episode. Just pushing a question I asked a while ago back to the top. <laughs> Especially now that it's spring and racing is starting again. What do you look for on an OC, uh, on a course map? I imagine it different from everyone based on strength and weaknesses, but can you touch on what elites look for on a course map? Did we do an entire episode on this? Yeah, we actually did. But we can do a brief overview here real quick. I, they all start to blend together at this point. We did how we analyze. How we analyze. Yeah. We did a whole episode. Yeah, an episode on race weekend, basically. From yeah. sunup to sundown on Friday through Sunday. We an- we immediately look at where are the grip gauntlets. Like, where are we going to need our grip? We look at where are the heavy carries. We look at where's the open running. And we identify where are my strengths and weaknesses going to lie. And then we make our plan of attack for where do I have to burn matches? Where do I not? Where can I recover a little bit? Perfect case scenario. You get to play all those things out. More than likely, you're behind the eight ball from the start desperately trying to hang on and trying to send up a hail mary on certain obstacles that someone's going to miss and you're going to run your way back into it that's the depressing truth (laughs) first thing i always look at is the elevation profile depending on the race so my if you know it's going to be a flat course because you've been there before then that's fine but any sort of mountain race i'm always looking and strategizing on the climbs and descents as far as managing my efforts so that's always my step one and then my step two is I look right for where the carries are and how they align with the elevation profile, meaning do I have a big vert carry coming up or not? So I go to the carries right away, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, that's first. And then um, and then from there, it's, it's mostly just knowing where I'm at on course in relation to the obstacles. It doesn't have much to do with effort. It's more like I know at Z-Wall I have a mile left. That's what I call my Hanson, and it's time to sell out, for example. So... I just I just look for for course markers like oh yeah when I hit Olympus I have one climb left for example and that's my marker all I do is use them as reference points on the course but as far as strategy and managing effort it's mostly to do to the terrain and the carries to be yeah. honest that's what I go to so that makes sense that. I think the only thing that really I spend a lot of time making sure I get right is knowing when I might hit mud or water and when the next grip obstacle is going to be sure. making sure I know I can touch the ground or I cannot touch the ground at this point with my hands. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Cause that doesn't matter whether I'm winning losing in the middle of the pack that has to be hit correctly. Other things it's like once, once you're no longer, if you're winning, all the little things matter. If you're losing, all you're trying to do is hang on, but grip always needs to be there or it just gets worse. Like a potentially muddy barbed wire crawl before Z wall or a rolling mud right before rope mm-hmm. climb or whatever. Stream it is. crossing. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Do you want to add anything to that? No, no, we did that whole episode. I don't recall exactly what it is, but give her a scroll through. 
Yeah, go go take a look. There's probably something that'll help you out more in the archives. I got one here. Louisa, just finished a Spartan Sprint Weekend that I placed first and third age group. Well, congratulations. hey yo. Ran faster than most of my competitors, but obstacle proficiency just okay, balancing out with the running. Heart rate data never reached red zone, stayed yellow both races almost always. Does that mean I could have pushed harder or the heart rate doesn't have a chance to spike because of all the interruptions? Thanks, guys. It depends on the athlete. For example, most races, my heart rate doesn't look like I'm doing a race in OCR. Even in stadiums, I was telling Kirk during our our three-hour chat session that most of my stadium race heart rate aligns with my tempo run heart rate. Because of the stairs, I think, and the stop-start, my heart rate doesn't get into like 5K race heart rate zone. It just doesn't very often. Towards the end, it does. But my bigger heart rates come from like 10K distance races rather than the shorter ones. Shorter ones, I get more out of breath than my... It feels like my heart rate's high, but it doesn't generally get as high. I guess I want to know if you get the the red zone often in your training for starters and Mm -hmm. then two i often see the same thing like i'm stuck in threshold mostly because of the duration of the event and so there's sort of like a rev limiter put on you due to duration um sure in a five minute interval and you do five five minute intervals in training and you get into your red zone the last minute of maybe the last two or three of them like, of course, you know, there's an end in sight. You can push towards the end and breach and get into your zone five. And because, you know, the finish is right there before you get your rest. And in OCR, it just doesn't work that way. It's just it's if you end up dipping into your zone five, it's almost kind of like an accident. Like you almost want to stay out of there for the most part, mm-hmm. really, because you can only do that so many times. And so I actually think your heart rate data is very indicative of most um, sure, you catch your breath on some of the obstacles like spear throw and Z wall and things in which just take a little time. But overall, like that, it's a threshold effort. Even a sprint for most people is going to be more than 40 minutes. So, of course, you're not going to be in zone five. And if you are, you're up for a painful race. Yeah. So that's my opinion. I agree with it. I do. Okay. Is that it? When you get done with a race, I believe you know whether you could have run harder or not. Very rarely does my data change my mind afterwards. The only time the data might tell me the real truth is if I lost my mental edge during a race and started feeling sorry for myself and thought, I just can't run any harder than this. And afterwards, I'm like, oh, that's so low. I definitely could. And then in the back of my mind, I realized, yeah, I kind of let off. But most of the time in the moment, you know, I'm blowing up if I hold this or I can keep this. So I don't think unless you knew afterwards you could have run harder that you need to make a big change. It sounds like you outran people and you lost time on obstacles. That would be where I'd start. Yeah, I agree. Me too. But yeah, that, but but being hard on yourself about um, not getting your heart rate up high enough, I don't think is valid, especially I think you are right, Brack, and your intuition like is, is accurate as far as did you, did you push hard enough or did you not? You know the answer to that. Well, and that feeling fades, right? The most common thing of athletes is a day or two or a week or two later to be like, man, I should have just, I should have hung on when that guy left. And of course. Like, yeah, you should have, but you probably didn't have the choice to. No. And then later on, you're like, oh, you know, I could have just done that. Well, you can try next time. But again, I, it's a bad equation, but I equate this to childbirth sometimes where in the moments, like I can't do this anymore. And afterwards, like I could do that again. 
Mm-hmm. In the moment, that's not the way you were feeling, but your body tricks you so that you'll do it again. What gives you authority to use that analogy? I don't have the authority to. <laughs> I'm not saying they're equal. It's the same game your mind game, your mind plays on you. If you remembered exactly how bad it was, if you could conjure that exact feeling up, you'd never have another child. Mm-hmm. You'd never run another race. Our minds are made for getting over trauma. That's the only way our human race has really succeeded is that we can absorb atrocities and move on to some extent. Races aren't atrocities, hopefully, but to some extent, they're a small amount of trauma. Yeah. So that, that same mechanism in our mind is present there, which tricks you into thinking, eh, it wasn't that bad. We should do that again. It's the only reason we keep coming back, I think. Or you're a true psychopath that craves who does remember it and just wants it again. There's one thing pain makes you feel, and that is alive, Bracken, and we will chase that to eternity. So we will. Uh, Mark Falcone says, okay, shoes I am a guru in. Next best topic on OCR accessories, Garmin watches. Did he just challenge me? My hackles are up over here, Kirk. Yeah, Mark, better watch out. Bracken put up his dukes. So, (laughs) best bang for the buck and best overall Garmin for OCR. My 235 is finally kicking the bucket and won't hold a charge for more than a half a day. Ironically, I left the charger in my rental coming from Savage, Florida. It's time for an upgrade. Recommendations? Also thought it might be a good topic for Q&A, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Best bang for your buck is whatever the cheapest Garmin Forerunner is. That's what I believe. Whatever their current lowest offering is. Probably a 230 30. right now. Garmin Forerunner 230 paired with an external heart rate monitor is going to get you 99.99999% of the way there. They have the FR35, the FR40 as well, which is the real budget version. But I got that for Lisa, and she she had issues with it. So that's the version I used to use. The FR15 was my very first true GPS watch, I believe, or FR10. Those have no functions, though. Like, even, like, laps and recording stuff are, like, like, looking back on workouts is difficult, if I recall. Yeah, so the newer ones are much better. They're like the original 220s were, except they seem to be cheaply made. She had issues with it. Her GPS was always struggling to pick her up. There'd be times she'd look down and she's running four-minute pace, and times it was nine-minute pace, and the whole time she's running seven-minute pace. She had some issues with it, and the band discolored really quickly and grew mold on it, and she didn't take care of it any different than the others. So I still think the Forerunner, the true Forerunner, not the FR, even though FR stands for Forerunner in the Garmin line, the cheapest fully spelled out Forerunner is the best watch you can buy. But Koros Pace watch is quickly making up ground. I almost bought one of those, but then I found this this good deal on mine. There's really worked out for me short term but the Coros Pace 2 right now is one of the greatest budget options as well it's not budget it's high end budget like what are you talking price wise oh it's at least 200 yeah yeah well like here's the thing my my qualm with like you have the Garmin Forerunner 230 and you have the Garmin Forerunner 235 the only yeah. difference is the 235 has a built-in heart rate monitor and i don't care who you are that data is getting thrown out so don't spend mm-hmm. the money on the 235 and then rely on your wrist-based heart rate monitor. Buy the yeah. 230 and pair it with an external heart rate monitor, and you have yourself about as good and as cheap as it gets. And it's lighter. And it doesn't have that bump on the back that sometimes causes people issues. Yeah, the bump with the, the heart rate reader. Mm-hmm. So you, you get a, a brand-new 230 for like 200 bucks or under. You get a nice external heart rate monitor for 70 bucks, and 
you can find all the data you need on Strava if you subscribe to that app after the fact and your money. That's right. And it works on Garmin, too, Garmin Connect. They accept external heart rate monitors. Okay. Um, I am a Spartan podcast. Asks, what are your favorite incline workouts for treadmill? Go for it. You know, we always do our really good workouts for building fitness. So I'm going to veer away from that. I'm going to go for just hero workouts. The triple challenge, Kirk. I'm listening. We all know the treadmill challenge. 15 minutes at 15% incline for max distance. Triple challenge, you do it three times with five minute rest in between for your best cumulative cumulative distance. Triple challenge. That's spicy. Damn. I mean, it's basically running 3 by 5 k threshold work, which is a half marathon and marathon workout, but you're doing it uphill. Have you done it? Because you've piqued my interest in a millisecond. Oh, yeah. But I use it as a threshold workout, so I've never done it for, like, for time, as CrossFit would say, for reps. I do it for beating my previous one, but truly just staying within my heart rate range. Okay, non-Nordic track. Because we all know those are calibrated. I haven't done it non-Nordic track. No, no. But let's say non-Nordic track, your hope is to keep the exact same pace for all three 15-minute bouts. One five. So you're starting at six miles an hour. If I'm fit, non-Nordic, threshold pace for me is six miles per hour at 15% incline, roughly. Five minutes rest times three. You think you could hold that? Yeah, I think I did that at three-minute rest because I was doing it as threshold, not as all-out. I want to say I averaged that. Uh, That's impressive. I would start at six as well. Mm -hmm. Nordic track, I would be reticent to do so. I don't think I could do it right now. Okay. But I've done that. I think I could, and I think it would hurt a lot. It wouldn't be threshold. I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) That was Colorado days. I was I was very fit, and I was I want to say I was at or below threshold for all reps, except maybe like the last minute or two of the third one. Okay. Um, I like that challenge. Triple challenge. I will say, um, we're we're not going to do OCR work. I, I guess I'm not going to include that in these. And my favorite bouts are if I could have to pick one, it would be seven three intervals. It would be that simple because it's just the sweet spot of like just short enough where you got to up-tempo the effort, but just long enough where you're mostly sitting in threshold. And at 7-3, seven, seven minutes hard, three minutes hike recovery, anywhere between 15 and 30%. I like that. And then I also just like simply going in and out of like threshold and some sort of recovery in a sense where you may do, you know, 90 seconds at a hard effort and then 90 seconds at what we'd call like almost a float effort, but at incline where you might go, let's mm-hmm. say I'm using 15%. I might go six miles an hour, four miles an hour, six miles an hour, four miles an hour, and just speed play back and forth. You'd be astonished how much vert you stack up and just kind of what stay power. And at an incline, your heart rate doesn't really fall that fast. And so it's a good way to keep your heart rate up in the threshold zone without hating your life. And so going back and forth like that, I find, although very hard, um, I'm not making, I don't mean to make it sound easy. I just find it's like a good bang for your buck without completely mm-hmm. ruining you. So those, those two styles, but seven, three, for some reason that's stuck for me. Okay. If you want to hate your work, you hate your life workout. Here it is. You put it up to 10% incline and you put it to the miles per hour. You think you could hold or your goal PR pace for the treadmill challenge. 
So let's say that's six miles per hour. You set it to 10 and you run it for one minute, hop off and do 10 burpees and you go until you can't keep it anymore. Rest five minutes, do it again. Rest five minutes, do it again. That sounds dumb and painful. Yeah. Again, these aren't like fitness workouts. This is turn yourself inside out workout. The first one's a fitness workout, but the second version of the grind, but even worse, but a spicy version. Yeah. It's short. Like if you can make it 10 rounds, that's impressive. Their first round. Painful. That, that one got me. I did two rounds of that in a hotel one time when we were traveling. And that one got me lightheaded, worried that I might actually pass out. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we could list off a hundred of them if we wanted to, but go. I accept that challenge. We should stop now. Yeah. Let's do what? Two, three more. Sure. Okay. Uh, Megan Fitter. Uh, hello. I thought I'd try my luck at sliding a question in here. What was the date? Let's see how lucky she is. Uh, March 3rd. That's not bad for us. That's pretty good. Month and a half. Yeah, not bad. Pat yourself on. She's gonna think we're stalking her. How quickly responded? Really? Yeah. Uh, Where is the line between lactic threshold pace, uh, lactate threshold pace, and the gray zone? So where is the line between lactate threshold pace and the gray zone? Um, (laughs) and then she says, "Congrats uh, to me on some things," which is very nice. Thanks, Megan. So where is the line between lactate threshold pace and the gray zone? I think I don't have feelings. Um, I go out of my way to get back to you in seven weeks on this question. <laughs> you don't give me a single congratulations. <laughs> she congratulated me on Jacksonville. Talked about maybe the spear being it's all right that I missed the spear. She was patting me right. on the back. Whatever. I'll let it slide, Megan. I got your name correct twice in a row, so that's already better <laughs> than my previous poster, Lindsay. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I'll jump in. Yeah, start. You got aerobic threshold? And lactate threshold, where does gray zone lie between? Well, I think the whole problem is with her phrasing, and it's where is the line between lactate threshold pace and the gray zone? Well, there's no such thing as a pace associated with the gray zone or lactate threshold. Pace is out the window. Really, it's heart rate based. Yeah. But I'm also splitting hairs just to be annoying. However, that is the truth. So really, the question should say, where is the line between lactate threshold heart rate and the gray zone i think would be the appropriate question she's meaning to ask and i don't mean to be a dick let's be pedantic blood lactate levels now i'll set you up to (laughs) spawn off of that i'm not going to say much everything between aerobic threshold and lactate threshold is considered gray zone yep um which i can't stand that term Especially since with lactate threshold, they've shown that plus minus six to 8% is just as effective as sitting right at that. And what is another term for gray zone? Marathon, marathon pace, marathon effort, probably, which is race pace effort for a marathoner, which is faster than race pace for an ultra marathoner. So by different people's definition, it serves a very specific purpose. So I guess to answer your question specifically, above aerobic threshold, below lactate threshold is considered gray zone. And I'm living in gray zone right now. <laughs> you are. I'm living there. Like I'm trying to give like a pace example. Like let's say, Megan, that on your easy days with a recovery heart rate, you run 10 minute pace. And on your hard days where you're doing 10 minute threshold intervals, you run 730 pace, Right. Well, your gray zone is going to be like splitting the difference in the middle chunk somewhere in there, 
pace wise, maybe it's like eight thirty to nine thirty pace or something. It's like very mm-hmm. difficult to quantify pace wise. That's why I'm struggling with it. But it would be an example like that, like splitting the difference between a hard effort pace and a recovery pace, and then somewhere in the middle, that slice in the middle, the exact middle of the in between, probably your gray zone ish. Yes. I don't I don't know if that even makes any sense. I'm supposed to be a coach. You understand what I'm getting at, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's not hard, it's not easy, and it's a little slightly less than mo- than upper moderate as well. That doesn't help yeah. at all. We've no. said this many times. I've said this many times, but I'll just repeat it for anyone who hasn't heard it or just might need to hear it again. There is nothing wrong with gray zone training. Nope. Except it doesn't give you as much bang for your buck recovery-wise. The effort it costs you and the recovery associated with it, it doesn't give you as much benefit as true lactate threshold or VO2 max work. But because it doesn't feel as difficult and it doesn't trash you as much, you generally don't take as much recovery afterwards. So if you take the full recovery and treat it like a true quality day, you didn't get as much bang for your buck because it didn't need quite that much, but it need some amount. So you're either under recovering or over recovering unless you plan it out very specifically. And that's why it's a problem for many people is because they don't recover adequately. I could argue that almost any pace is beneficial. If you control the recovery after that pace correctly, you could do a hundred percent gray zone work for your quality. You could do 80, 20 training and be in gray zone for all 20 and still be a very good athlete. If you recovered appropriately, you'd be better. Most likely if you did some spicier work, but you'd be just fine. Especially if you're doing long races like marathon or longer. I agree with all of that. And we've said it before. I know it might be redundant for some people, but that Michael Jordan principle that someone's going to see you for the first time. Well, someone might listen for the first time here and maybe they have to hear it so i'm gonna keep repeating it because gray zone is not the enemy under or over recovering is the enemy yep specifically under for most people right over recovery you lose out on adaptation and under recovery you just slowly dig yourself into your own grave yeah (laughs) never to climb out again um i have four screenshots left so i think we just power them out i'm gonna feel really good about these being clean before lisa drops another 20 on me so how about you just give me this? We'll make them happen fast. Kirk, I will gladly give it to you. <laughs> Thanks, Bracken. You're welcome. Jessica D. Hi, I just finished listening to this week's Training Tuesday and something Bracken said towards the end of a question I've had. Uh, towards the end, in regards <laughs> to staying power, reminded me of a question I've had. Whenever someone says, and something Bracken or something Kirk said, I always cringe that it's going to be really piss me off or I disagree with or hurt my feelings. So far, none of that. <sighs> Um, I've noticed that people tend to take off like bats out of hell at the start of OCR races mm-hmm. quite a bit faster than the threshold pace we can actually hold for the duration. Is it ideal to do this for those first couple minutes before setting into race pace since it takes heart rate a couple minutes to climb to beyond threshold heart rate from arresting heart rate at the start? Um, almost like free fast running before the heart rate is high or does that initial sprint cost us later in the race? I know in certain cases, if there are bottlenecks early, you'd want to get ahead of the pack, but in general, I come from a marathon background and have always ran my own race and usually negative split. I'd never start like that in a marathon or a half. The super fast starts seem bonkers to me, but everyone else does it. So dot, 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 uh, I don't know. Emoji. I like this question. It's very level headed. Great question. Yeah. 
It is, and it's applicable to almost everyone. First of all, I'm going to answer this in reverse order. Everyone does it, it seems like. That's true. Also, we're a sport made up of castoffs, of different sports, and sometimes no sports. People find this later in life, generally. And so a lot of people just don't actually have a marathon background or some other background where they learned proper pacing. So part of it's ignorance. And I don't mean that like, you're ignorant, just not knowing better. And the other half is... There's that there's this misnomer in the sport that you have to get out and commit. And I've apologized on one episode where I said, Kirk, I just have to make a PSA. I'm sorry. I've helped contribute to this. You have to get out harder than you need to sometimes in order to position yourself in the race. But the fact is there is no free effort in life. Outside of 15 to 20 seconds early in a race, if you go past that, there is nothing free. Your heart rate hasn't responded yet, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't cost you. If that were the case, you could continually spike and then stop and spike and stop, and you'd be able to go just as long as if you never spiked, and that's not the case. So it will catch up. It just catches up seven minutes or 10 minutes later rather than in real time. So no, I think you're doing it correctly and you can start inching up your pace. Maybe you can start getting out slightly more aggressive, but there's that point a few minutes into every race where people settle in and realize, well, that's as fast as I'll ever move today. And there's always someone that moves past at that point. You think, shoot, I'd rather be that person. Keep being that person. It's amusing. I mean, it's amusing. Every elite start I've been on, especially, I mean, U.S. National Series races, it's always going to be a hot start, mostly because of the level of competition that is there, the level of talent. But even in non-U.S. Series races, in a regular regional race, the amount of people that go out like bats out of hell, as she says, is is laughable. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of those things where you need to pick your course, exactly what she said. The only reason to really go out hot is if you see a bottleneck of obstacle or terrain type, And it makes sense. And there's also, you know, um, there's merit to just racing. And if that means like you're looking Mm -hmm. for a breakthrough, then that means staying attached and it means running beyond yourself. I think in a race that's 40 minutes or longer, like running your own race typically works out best for you. Yeah. But, um, but you're exactly right. It's going to remain bonkers. It's people that don't know their own bodies and fitness and it's positioning because these courses narrow out very quickly and, and, All we can do is acknowledge it. That's it. Simply that it. Yes, these people are bonkers. Yes, sometimes I also choose to be bonkers and Bracken choose to be bonkers because it just makes the most calculated sense for the course or the terrain that is about to ensue. But if you look at any true long races that are of marathon time-wise, because she says she comes from a marathon background, you do not see that ever out of the people who know what they're doing. Never do you see somebody going out too hot that ends up, you know, that's really a contender uh, winning. It's like... we're seeing these short races and that's where they seem to happen. But in mountain beasts, regular beasts, people are typically smart. And our sports getting deeper, which makes it even more imperative to not overcook early. The only time nowadays I would recommend people doing something, going out with a pace they can't sustain is in some of these races where you get five or six people at a start line. In Indiana last year, there was a race with, I think four women in it. And in that one, it wouldn't be a terrible idea to just get out fast and let everyone else give up. And you could spend the next hour just running your own race. But if you are faster than other people there and you want them to give up, that's about the only time to get out hard and just end their motivation. But in a pack of people, the Peloton almost always wins out. 
they almost always gobble up the breakaway unless the breakaway is a monster like 99 out of 100 times the peloton gobbles up the breakaway and even then breakaway doesn't happen from the gun almost ever Mm -hmm. it happens after a point which means they're not starting out too fast they waited to play their card yep so you're right it's a tough thing to do and it's really hard to be one of the only people that holds back groupthink plays a huge role in people's race strategy how many times do you have an athlete who's like you know what i ended up not just doing what we talked about because the pack just did this and i just went with it yep all the time all the time uh fabio portella or fabio it's got a little accent over the a so i don't know what Mm. that voice inflection means um hi from portugal i'm a big fan of your podcast i have a question for you guys i have tried to test my lactate threshold like it was proposed by you as an effective method to test it out but i'm not quite sure that it was correctly executed i know that i'm someone who has a good resistance to fatigue and i'm capable of running my ass off way more than i should so i have done a 50 minute run all-out test and only collect my average heart rate in the last 20 minutes of the workout. I'm a 32-year-old amateur runner with a huge with a huge experience as a football player about 20 years. The real football, soccer ball emoji. And my average heart rate for the last 20 minutes of the workout was a 184 BPM. So to track, so if you're following, he ran an all-out time trial for 50 minutes, meaning he ran as fast as he could for 50 minutes. He took the average heart rate of his last 20 minutes of that 50 minutes and it was a 184 BPM. I used a Garmin heart rate monitor pro strap to measure my heart rate. I think that's too high to work as my lactate threshold in the subsequent workouts. Could you please try to help me out on this one? Sorry for the huge text. Congrats for the amazing podcast. I would agree that's too high, probably. We don't know his his heart, his max might be 210. That's the thing we don't know. Yeah. So for people like that, if you actually don't want to get in and get tested, just go run a race. Go run a 10K and peg that thing. If you can hold 185 that entire time, then you know. Go run a half marathon. If you if you hold 185 for the whole half marathon, you know that's that's not your lactate threshold. Your lactate threshold is even higher than that. If for the half marathon you end up holding 175, you know that for that last 20 minutes you were running, I don't know, somewhere in between lactate threshold and VO2 max effort. It's tough to tell on people who are just tough, who can take, like Kirk, you're one of those people. I talked about this in our time trial episode, our heart rate episode. I wouldn't sign you the same time trial I would sign someone else for heart rate because you'd be able to exceed the guide, the, the almost like the normal guidelines of that by just being tough in a workout. So yeah, yeah some people need an alternative test for it and that's okay. I don't know what to tell them. I wish we had more data. Um, in particular, like the highest heart rate he's seen in any race or workout up to Mm -hmm. date, or if he knew his max, I mean, the last 20 minutes of a 50 minute test is pretty sound. I would maybe say, take the last 30 of a 50 minute test, which might reduce that slightly, but we're splitting hairs. What's that going to move it a beat or two? Probably. I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I don't know. I mean, that seems high for a lactate threshold. Don't get me wrong. That seems very high. But uh, the test isn't bad. Like The only way it's faulty. If I did that test, if I did that test, speaking to me just toughing it out, I think I'd be about where I think it would be. Close to? I, I would take your average for the test. 
You take my whole average, huh? Or maybe of the last 35 minutes or 40. Mm-hmm. Because I think he just got real deep into it towards the end. Here's what, what I would say. Do the do the aerobic threshold. No nasal breathing. <laughs> Let me start over. Do the incline treadmill nasal breathing only aerobic threshold test. And then follow it up with uh, a couple days later the drift test. So look up uphill athlete heart aerobic threshold heart rate test and you'll there's a nasal breathing test and a drift test do them both that will tell you your aerobic threshold and they counter each other they balance each other very well if you do the nose breathing one incorrectly your drift test is going to be all skewed and then there's protocol for how to address that if that one comes out to let's say 175 you know, that might be a real number for you. But if it's 150, you know that your 185 is just way over and you're just a super tough guy who is able to get there in training. So I would actually, if unless you want to get to a lab, I'd, I'd address the lower end of the spectrum and find out what the lower limit is for you. you know what would tell me more about this, to be honest, is what his pace did those last 30 minutes Mm. in relation to his heart rate. Now, if he was bleeding slowly and his pace was getting slower and slower and slower, that would tell me he was over his lactate threshold and he was bleeding out his ears and he couldn't sustain that, which would tell me he's breached his threshold. If he was consistent over those last 30 minutes or even got a little faster as he went, it would tell me maybe that is an accurate threshold. But if he was bleeding time and negative split or positive splitting, then I'd be like, yep, red flag. You're, you surpass your lactate threshold. That'd be one of the comparatives I'd definitely use now that I think about it. What if he was just slightly slower than 5K pace his last 20 minutes? What if he was like running 7 minute, 7 minute, 530, 5.20? Would it be the opposite maybe? That he way over as well. Yeah, that'd be confusing as well. I need to see the whole thing, Brian. Yeah. Send it over. Send it all. And try the aerobic threshold test. That will give you some parameters. Two more. Brett the T-Rex Mills. Hey, got a question for your next training Tuesday. I'm not sure if you guys touch base on that. The benefits of hybrid training to running. Like if you're a runner, will it help or will it hurt your running ability? (laughs) That's the whole thing. Hybrid training? Yep, that's what he's got. Very basic question. Sent at 4.10 a.m. So kudos to you for getting up early. Maybe he pulled an all-nighter, and that's what was on his mind at the end of a bender. I don't know. Uh, he's sober because he's reached out to me in that regard, this well, sir. I apologize, T-Rex. <laughs> so, But maybe he's on a different time zone. Maybe he got up at a reasonable hour. Man, I'm swinging and missing today. Really? Yep. You want to tackle that one? Uh... Let's give let's give the literally give your 60-second elevator speech on it. I'll give mine, and let's move to the next because we've talked about this at nauseum at different points. In episodes. If you're a pure runner, the shorter your goal race, the less you will get any benefit from hybrid training or compromised running. The longer or more or less sterile the race is, if it's trail, if it's mountain, if it's ultra, the more benefit you will get from a hybrid training and compromised running because it's going to help bulletproof your legs. And if you can run compromised from weight work or lunging, you can run while under duress in a race. That was like 30 seconds. Nice. Thanks. I can do quick. Hybrid. <laughs> You're referring to answering questions? Yeah, man. Um, hybrid Hybrid training is all about increasing your durability or your resistance to fatigue. 
it's not helping you sharpen. It's not helping your mechanics and by any means to run faster. And in anything that's long, I agree with you. That's where it plays in. It makes you more bulletproof, makes you learn how to run while tired. And that happens from an OCR as simple as going over a mogul or an over under through or uh, rolling mud. It helps you be more resilient, get back up to speed faster. If you're purely looking at run metrics running fast, I would say 5K or under, I think it's only going to kind of send you sideways a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I guess that's probably hit my, my limit there. Could you run well off of it? Yes. Absolutely. Could you run your absolute best? Probably not. Yeah. Last question from Last one. Jason West. Mr. West, Mr. West. Question for the podcast. Suppose whether due to injury or a magical curse, only about 25% of your week is allowed to be running and the rest must be cross training. This 25% could, did we answer this one? There's a similar one to this, wasn't there? We did this at the end of every coaching episode, the coaches series. That's what it was. Okay. This 25% could be broken up or used all at once in any combination before the curse takes effect. Would you commit to 25% to quality work with aerobic cross training or use the 25% for time on feet and hammering quality and cross training combination thereof? Assume time versus distance is not relevant for the scenario. If I'm running short events, I'm breaking it up into only spice and doing all my volume, not impact. What do you consider uh, short events? Uh, 10K or under, I'm doing 10K or faster work almost every session. Maybe some threshold, but I'm not doing any easy running. If I'm running mid-long distance stuff like 10K to marathon, I'm doing two sessions. One longer, grindier, one short and spicy. And if I'm doing ultras, I'm doing one week where I'm doing the whole thing in 25% on one day. And the next week where I split it into two. I like back and forth, back and forth. I think I would play the system a little bit. And that is I would hit all the volume I want and quality and everything, irregardless as to percentage on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And then I would fill the gaps with as much cross training as it requires to make that ratio of running 25%. Ooh, I like that. But I think this curse takes effect. It's like this, you know, arbitrary or this like uh, mysterious situation in which it needs to be calculated ahead of time. Maybe I don't know, but I think I would, uh, I would do that. I would hit exactly what I want within reason. And then I would, I'll say, let's talk. We're going to go duration instead of distance because you can't compute cross training to distance. And then I would uh, navigate the rest of the week accordingly. And if that meant sitting on my bike for three hours in between hard workouts to get the appropriate ratio, then I might do that. I like it. So you might run an 80-mile week, and that might take you seven hours of running, and then you've got to go out and do, what, 28 20, hours of... <laughs> 21 hours, 28, 20, yeah, something like that, 28 hours. Oh, 21, with it, 21. It's good math. Within reason, yeah. I. I would. I'd probably reduce volume a little bit on my Thursday, and I'd make Tuesday super to the point as far as time spent. And then Saturday, I'd do the bare minimum of a long run I felt like I needed to set me up. And then I would hammer Monday, Wednesday, Friday with volume and still try to take Sunday off. And it might just be two-hour recovery efforts every single damn day in between. So be it. You might turn into a monster doing this <laughs> you because might. the average person doesn't max out their available time and energy for volume. It might make the average now to the pro runner, probably not, but to the average person that might just be your game changer. Yeah, it could be. 
I think I would do workarounds though, like maybe warm up on the bike for 15 minutes, then go out and run 10 minutes before my quality session, then hit the quality, then hit my cool down on the bike. Like you could work around it and get every ounce of for sure. fitness out of that. If you really had to start playing puppeteer, I think you could do a good job if you had to. I did a summer of that when I had my IT band issues and I was not IT band, my meniscus issues building into an ultra and I was doing uh 20 to 30 mile bikes either before or after hill sessions to magnify the session Ooh, beforehand that must have just left your legs pretty empty huh on the hills. one week i'd do it before one week i'd do it after mm. neither felt good but both sucked yeah i used to do some of that stuff triathlon training bricks and and those sort of things mm-hmm. and man running hills especially after the bike running in general but that's that's a brutal way to torture yourself you know what changed that the Nordic track. Yeah. Cause then you could do both. You could do non-impact work still by just hiking uphill or running uphill. Yeah. So that kind of removed the bike from the equation for me. That's the best, best piece of equipment. I think anybody can own if you're in our sport. For sure. We're done. I've eaten like three and a half pounds of ham in the last three days. I don't think it sits well with you. No, and I've noticed that the last few times I had it. I, I made us an Easter ham, and I'm the only person. Me and my dad were the only people that really even eat much meat in our family. Lisa had a little bit. And so all the leftovers, I've just been eating for every meal. Ham, ham, ham. It's all those nitrates and that crap gets you. That's what it is. I think oh, it it's, is. It's wrecking shop in my stomach right now. Oh, why don't you open the doors and windows and go get a, a bite of fresh air and... <laughs> And we'll move on. Lisa told me she's pitching it. She said, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> That's you were the ham. <laughs> said, take the ham. Listen, that animal died for you, and you're going to finish every last piece of that ham. I'm going to honor that That's animal with this out-of-control flatulence that is plaguing our household. I'm glad we do this recording virtually. Yeah. Yeah. Although, at this point, I wouldn't be shocked if it was coming through the screen to you. No, just a little green fog, but I can handle that. Shall we wrap this thing up before more nonsense ensues and you can get some privacy? It's been a good day at the office, Kirk. <laughs> sure has. Well done. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for putting up with that, folks. We'll have a guest for you next week, barring no major uh, schedule problems. All right. And Kirk, you'll have to uh, you'll have to accountability check me Friday morning. Big ol' incline workout. All right. I expect uh, 10,000 10, feet or more. Okay, if you're prepping for 13-3 on race day and or seven to eight hours, what would you target for a big incline session? See if you and I are thinking the same way. 9,500, 9,000 minimum. I was thinking two-thirds of the vert on the course. Uh-huh. That's what I was thinking. What does that get me to? Four, eight, 12? Uh, yeah, about nine. What is, what is two-thirds? That's what I think should be done as a general rule of thumb with a number of different training metrics. What's two thirds of thirty of thirteen three is eighty eight hundred. Eighty eight. Okay, nine thousand. I think is what I retracted to. So yeah, thirteen five would be uh, eighty nine ninety nine. So yeah, let's let's call it nine thousand. So I'm gonna try to hit nine thousand feet of vert. I was thinking ten. You know, Fred Clary principle and all. Ten's yeah. a good round number. Nope, you got to go to one hundred and ten of race effort. So you got to go about fifteen thousand feet back and get fifteen thousand feet. I for one brief moment in time I considered Everesting. Yeah. And I even messaged Forrest Bogue because he did it. And I asked him how terrible it was. It's funny you bring that up, but um 
I don't know what my future holds as far as stupid things that I'll be doing. However, <laughs> I'd say it's chock full. <laughs> but I actually thought about Eversting uh, on my run the other day, thinking that I would love a go at Granite Peak, but the ascending and descending. I know Atkins has done it, and that straight shot up the middle at Granite Peak that's about 700 feet is brutally steep, pretty runnable, and mm-hmm. probably one of the perfect hills and grades to do it on. And I don't know. If I hate myself enough one day, I might just decide to set something like that up. Well, I think it would take about 41 or f- somewhere between 38 and 41 trips up and down. Yeah, it's a lot. On my hill at home, I think it is 66 I would have to do. I would rather go up and down the least amount of times because there's something to getting into a rhythm, and that's important. Is that right? I have to do 145? 29,029, is that the feet needed? Something like that. It goes up, it grows every year, shrinks, one of the two, I forget. At one point, Atkins had the second best, uh, the best um, run ever seen. There's two f- for forms. There's rules to all this. It has to be on one hill. You can't switch hills. You can't switch runs. And with the with running, you have the opportunity to either go up and down or go up and be transported down, and your time stops at the top and bottom each time. So he did the obvious. I think you got to do it. He did the up and down. He did the up and down. And he did it on a bike, I believe. He he did a week where he did back-to-back-to-back days where he did run, bike, and ski. Not necessarily in that order. He did three Everestines in a week and maybe three in a row. It's ridiculous. But that wasn't the week I think that he, he went after it on foot. The one he went after on foot, he did um, as a standalone. <laughs> Not that that's any slouch, because I think it's like nine hours or eight hours of work. I don't know why that appeals to me, but it does. So, I think every mountain runner it appeals to. Yeah, maybe we let's do it go. one day. Okay, there you go. Let's stop this podcast now. Stop it. Bye. <laughs>